Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and it is a great privilege to introduce our guest today, Somadoda Figeni and Nomzamon Tombela, who are visiting MSU, Michigan State University, as part of the Year of Global Africa and the Campus Activism for Justice Conference that takes place today and tomorrow here in East Lansing. So let me introduce each of the guests. Somadoda Figeni is a South African scholar, public commentator and analyst on politics, policy, economic, social, and heritage issues. He is an honorary professor at the University of South Africa, where he is currently also the director of special projects, handling partnerships, and a special advisor to the vice chancellor. He is co-convener of Scenario 2030, which is a forum on South Africa's strategic direction and trajectory. He has a, a BA and BA honors degree from the University of Transkei, today called Walter Sisulu University, a master's from Queen's University in Canada, and a PhD in political science from Michigan State University. Nonzam Tombela is an anthropology honors student at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, where she was elected as the first black female president of the Student Representative Council, and where she has been deeply engaged in the fees must fall, end rape culture, and end outsourcing movements on campus. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much for inviting us. One good way to start is by giving a little bit of background about yourselves to our listeners. So maybe, Professor Figeni, if you'd like to start. Well, I would simply say I come from a rural area in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. And that's where I grew up before going to the university. So going to the university was the first time ever to be in a city. Otherwise, my high schools and everything was in the rural setting. And I also come from a family of traditional leaders and priests, as well as teachers. So again, that may come up later as to how it shaped some of the things that I had to do later on. I was a student activist right from high school years. And uh, by the time I finished university, I had been in prison five times. Never charged, but at times I would be kept there for four months, solitary confinement, under the then laws because I was a political activist. And when I came to Canada, my natural instinct was also to join the anti-apartheid committee. And uh, Nelson Mandela was released when I was in Canada. And I witnessed this with the world which had participated in South African struggle, which I think is one of the most internationalized uh, anti-apartheid struggle. Probably the Palestinian would be the next one to have such an international scale of involvement. And then later on, I became a lecturer at my University of Transkei and uh, came to Michigan State University, did my PhD during that time. On my arrival at Michigan State University, I think it was within a month, I noticed that there was still an old South African flag in 1996. So I protested. I wrote an article. It 
was a big deal and uh, the university apologized, changed the flag. And this was my natural instinct to react and to be an activist. I went on to become the president of the African Student Union, tried to consolidate students who were country-based and in their associations, brought in Caribbean students, African-American students. So we had quite a formidable, uh, you know, forum, raised resources, raised issues. We confronted the state news for not covering some of our big events. Campus newspaper. The campus here newspaper here. Uh, yes. Uh, we brought the likes of Ali Mazrui, Ngugi Wathiongo, you name a number of them uh, during that time. And uh, we also challenged the university at the time when partnerships with South African universities were happening. We noticed that uh, most of the visiting scholars absent were the African scholars. Uh, from the South African universities, so we raised the issue again because, again, my instinct in activism has always been to spot where there might be known or unknown biases in terms of selections or narrative justice. Um, well, I'm a first-generation student I'm from South Africa. I come from a small town in um, KZN called Mpangini, but originally I grew up with my grandparents in a small village called Gwasokul. Um, so I went to what you would call Model C schools, um, mostly in my primary and high school years as well. And thereafter, um, I came to Stellenbosch University, which was a very interesting experience coming from Gozlu Natal and coming from a place where, you know, we were sort of conditioned, you know, with non-racialism and so forth, and you know, this notion of equality was sort of entrenched within us. But you know, the, these issues of displacement that we sort of felt weren't really sort of dealt with and addressed. And I got to an institution like Stellenbosch University where so much was happening, and people bring up so many things. And it was sort of a very interesting phase because there's something at Stellenbosch that students we call sort of like a euphoria, rainbow euphoria. So like for the first six months, you try very, very hard to not see whatever is going on around you because you just want to get your degree. For, for those who don't know, Stellenbosch is a very particular place. Mm. Um, I would call it sort of like the Harvard of Afrikanerdom in, in South <laughs> Africa. Is that, is that a, a fair characterization? I mean, it, it, I think it's definitely fair. We sometimes say when we're in Stellenbosch that, you know, Stellenbosch is a country on its own. It doesn't, it exists separately from the rest of South Africa, just in terms of how when you're in the town, you know, some students have said, you know, I know I'm black, but I know I feel it when I'm here. And it's not a good feeling to actually have, which is something that you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally hear people saying outside of Stellenbosch University. So it is a very interesting experience to me. And you know, during my time at Stellenbosch, there were movements like Open Stellenbosch that brought up issues of language as a means of exclusion. Mm -hmm. And later that year, you know, Rose Musil also started, Fees Musil then started thereafter. And then after that, we had it outsourcing. And then after that, we had in rape culture. Um, so my time at Stellenbosch, you know, when I got there immediately, you know, I was confronted with all of these different things. And during that period of euphoria, you know, there was also conversations going on and conversations where I was like, okay, you know, I felt this thing of displacement and I could sort of find, you know, sort of, I want to say an understanding, a common ground with other people where I was like, okay, I'm not feeling alone in this displacement. You know, this is perhaps why I'm feeling this sort of type of displacement. And, you know, there were 
lots of conversations that happened and that's why I was also introduced to lots of political consciousness because it's something that we didn't really have and also the history of South Africa because in our schooling, you know, Korea, we sort of were conditioned to a particular type of history that painted this narrative of beautiful rainbow, of equality and so forth and also a history that sort of said if you see race, if you see all of these differences, you're the problem. You know, you need to be seeing the rainbow, you need to be focusing on, you know, this notion of, you know, we call it a disillusionment of democracy as young people. You know, you need to be disillusioned in order for us to be able to achieve this main goal of democracy at all ends. So that's when I started sort of like noticing these things and I sort of started incorporating my activism work into my scholarly work as well because I said we need to actually ha- theorize these things, need to write these things, so that 10, 20 years from now, people aren't saying we're just going around doing things, sort of no rational reasoning or whatever. In fact, I just want to come in there to give a context to your followers that Stellenbosch University is a seedbed where most of your apartheid leaders studied and where most of the intellectual and conceptual ideological source of apartheid was groomed. So it has that very special place. And around that town, you also have the businesses which came out from that particular era, which is mainly concentrated there. So it would have its own special dynamics in response to issues of transformation besides the general ones. And until recently, Stellenbosch was an Afrikaans medium university. Uh, so the, the language issue has always been very central to the institutional culture and, of course, the, the politics around it. And you know, D.F. Malan, uh, architect of apartheid, was a, was a Stellenbosch uh, professor and yeah, that relationship is goes runs deep. So transformation in Stellenbosch has a particular character, and and we'll come back to fees must fall. But I th- I want to build on that point you made, Nomzam, about how uh, your academic interests and your activism are interrelated. Because so I went and read Somadada's PhD. Uh, from Michigan State, uh, a great PhD on elite politics in rural South Africa. And you had three case studies, uh, Eastern Cape, KwaZulu-Natal, and Pumalanga. And that's particularly an area that doesn't get as much coverage in the literature as it should, and the deputy uh, president in South Africa is from Pumalanga. But you looked at chiefs, you looked at elected councillors, at civic leaders, and you concluded, I think very convincingly, that you know, for the new democratic dispensation to fulfill its ambitions and, and to deliver uh, the goods, so to speak, and the services, it has to account for what happens in rural areas and, and the factors that affect the implementation of various development policies. So if you look back at your study 16 years later, um, how have things changed or not in the relationship between how rural politics work on the ground and how the policymakers in the cities mainly um, deal with these factors, these dynamics? Well, sadly, not much has changed. You'll see the rhetoric change to say rural development is now a priority. But in essence, all you have to do, you take the regular uh, national statistics which indicate that the rural areas are still at the bottom of the socio-economic ladder 
you also take the fact that most of the policymakers come from the cities. So rural areas tend to be a footnote which they do not quite understand. And even worse, the issue of dual authority where you do have the elected councillors and traditional authority, they have not come around to deal with that. For example, up to this day, the land in the rural areas is a competence of chiefs and their councillors, whereas service delivery is a function of elected officials. So elected officials, to get certain projects going, must have access to land. At the same time, traditional leaders and their communities need access to services. So that tension has always been there and has not quite been resolved. But not only that, the fact that most opportunities tend to come from the urban areas like housing, jobs, has led into this migration from the rural areas into the urban areas to a point where urban areas also dealing with people migrating from outside the country has become a space of contestation for very scarce resources in the margins, sure. informal settlements and so forth. So the situation, unfortunately, has not changed that much with the talk of land reform. It has brought, yet again, the attention to the rural areas. What is to be done? What is the development model? And among those, there was even a talk of one land piece which is under the Zulu King, the Ingwanyama Trust. It put into the spotlight the issue of traditional leadership. Uh, yet again. And it's this opaque space which the modern political system has not been able to grapple with because there is no original theoretical policy framework or conceptual framework that speaks directly to that uniqueness of the environment. And some of the more leftist politicians wish they could end traditional leadership. And we often remind them that even East Europe, after 70 years, traditional leadership was dormant, it came back. Countries like Mozambique tried to banish traditional leadership, thinking it was a feudal thing. It just continued to exist until they had to re-recognize it. The same with Buganda Kingdom, the same with key chiefs in Zimbabwe. So it's one area that has not been properly understood or conceptualized, and that's why it interested me most. Coming from KwaZulu-Natal, Nongzamane-Mpangeni uh, is kind of an, an interesting sort of mixture of rural and, and urban milieus. Um, how do you see what, uh, or respond to what uh, Professor Figeni just shared in terms of this relationship between the urban and the rural, because it's also a generational thing, right? I mean, students have very particular concerns given the stage of life that you're in, right? And um, the rural areas don't seem to be very attractive for young people for reasons I think that, that a lot of us know and listeners know. So what's your take on this very important political issue? And then we'll transition maybe to, to Fees Must Fall, re-enter the urban space. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of things that Professor Figueni has brought up in what he said. Um, you know, there's the issue of modernity and, you know, the issue of unemployment that many young people worry about. But I think 
also this sort of a move that many young people make from rural to urban is not just for the unemployment aspect, but it's also a thing of, you know, what we're taught in school and the things that we're taught, it's sort of like, you know, you'll be living in poverty, but you don't know that it's poverty. So you don't think, you don't see that there's anything wrong with it. You're happy with the condition that you're in, but you sort of leave and you'll go to school, for example, and you're told that this is abnormal. And you sort of don't know how to bring those two together. And within those types of things, you're also grappling with other things as a young person. And then you leave and you go towards the urban because now you want to uplift your family. You know, there's black tax for many first-generation students and things like that. And then you get to the urban and you find out I actually don't belong here either because of, you know, your behaviorisms, mannerisms and things like that, but also your ideologies and sort of how you view these different things. And I think for many young people, when you, you come to the issue of land, you know, for them it's a thing of, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say it's directly linked to a thing of heritage for young people. It's an aspect that sort of comes into it as well. But it's also a thing of economic development where young people say, well, look here, you know, for generations, you know, my people, my family have not had this land, you know, to be able to work and you give me some type of comfortability and sort of like access to resources and so forth. I want to be able to get that land so that I can help people from my own community and my own area sort of catch up to this development, you know, that everyone is speaking about. But, you know, the fact that I don't have this, it's sort of like, you know, what do you expect from me as a young person? You know, you've told me to go fish, but I don't have a fishing rod. So I think it's that type of analogy that can best describe where we find ourselves as young people, you know, in terms of these different issues of land and politics and things like that of saying you've given us you know this notion of democracy for example how do you expect us to attain the democracy when many things weren't addressed before so sort of how do we move forward until we address these things and intentionally grapple with them as well yeah the issue of land reform of course is central to contemporary politics in south africa with the call from julius malema and others for expropriation without compensation and we've you know heard about the backlash which even the U.S. president, in his highly informed way, chuckle, chuckle, uh, responded to. Um, it's all, there's also a gender dimension to this, right? Because as Professor Figeni shows in his PhD and in subsequent work, you know, the traditional elite and the rural elite, whether elected or not, uh, or coming from the grassroots, tends to be male-dominated. And so I think there's, there's these components that come out. And the Fees Must Fall movement was striking to me in the way that not only was it, you know, youth coming center stage in South African politics with very vigorous demands for tuition-free education, but it was also female-led in most campuses from what I could see. And you're a perfect example of that, Nonzamo. So can you tell us about a little bit about Fees Must Fall, your experience, and maybe also help the listeners understand kind of the, the gender dynamics within the movement? So in our sort of education system, and I think, you know, perhaps it differs for many different people, we've never really been taught about the role that women had in sort of like the anti-apartheid movement as well. So we've sort of always been told about these dominant male figures, and, you know, the woman is sort of coming in the background of saying, okay, you know, we had X, Y, and Z leading us, and then, oh, by the way, there was so-and-so as well. So coming into Fees Missoula, this was something that we were very cognizant about, and also the role that women had, even in South African politics, and sort of how 
when people were viewing their leadership styles, you know, it would always be a thing of saying, you know, but she's a woman, she's a great leader, but she's a woman. So that whole thing of gender also came into play during that time because we were like, we are the ones who suffer the most, the brunt of all of these different things as, you know, being women within the lower parts of, you know, the social structure of society. So it became a thing of where we were like, we're going to lead these movements ourselves because we understand most what it's like to be at the bottom of the social strata, which wasn't actually met really well with many of like our male counterparts in the movement. Because interestingly enough, we said the movement will be intersectional or it will not happen. And, you know, as much as we said all of these different things, what we sort of found and sort of what I also saw and noticed was that our spaces, the men would rise and take dominant voice in comparison to the woman. And the woman not wanting to divide, you know, be divisive and break up spaces would sometimes, you know, become the subaltern and sort of be in the background. And what happened on many campuses was that women actually formed substructures within the Board of Fees Four. We even had in UCT the Trans Collective, for example, at Southern Bosch, you had you know, the radical black feminists, and you know, there were all of these different substructures and marginalized bodies were sort of going into because they said, we don't find a voice within this larger collective movement. And it became a thing that, you know, as conducive as it was meant to be, it also became divisive because now we all, we all had different agendas that we wanted to achieve. You know, we can no longer sort of unite and be around this main goal that we we're sort of aiming for. So I think to a certain extent, these spaces, you know, provided us with a voice, but at the same time, the collective voice to bring them all together was a very difficult thing that we struggled with and grappled with a lot. But I think even within that itself, it also became a space where we could learn about many of the women who are key, you know, political figures within our country. You know, we were doing work on you know, Winnie Madezilla Mandela, we were doing work on Lillian Goy, Charlotte Matlegi, who I'd never heard about until, you know, I got to a movement such as Fees Miss War. So it also became a space where we could reflect and learn in these different types of women. And I think another interesting thing that provided such spaces is that when we'd occupied a building, we'd rename the building after a key woman political figure. And we'd be like, okay, this is Winnie Mandela House, and this that we're going to do whilst we're here. And we sort of worked around their works and conscientized people around who these women were and sort of what their role was. I think, yeah, I think that sort of brings it all together. And it's an ongoing process. It definitely is. Um, I think, you know, many people say that Fees Miss Water sort of like died down, um, you know, within this year more especially. I think the mission of Fees Miss Fall was not necessarily to sort of be like, you know, this very... I want to say seasonal movement, this, as many people came to call it. I think it was more of a space of conscientization. And these conversations still happen in some spaces where people get together and they sort of grapple with these types of things. They grapple with the issues of gender within rape culture. Um, more recently, you know, we've been grappling with these types of things. And, you know, it became the movement of sort of substructures where you address these things. And it sort of filtered now into other parts of society. Recently, we had a total shutdown where women in the country said we're shutting down the country because of the femicide rates and people are not listening to what women are actually saying. You know, the law's not listening to us. Our, you know, our government's not listening to us. Men are not listening to us. So you want to have a woman-only space where we take charge and we take the narrative in addressing these types of things as women. So I think, you know, Fismas saw in rape culture, it became sort of like a hub and the conversations are now spreading, you know, intentionally people are having and grappling with these difficult, difficult concepts that we didn't really grapple with all those years ago. So those are very important legacies of, of this activism. You know, fees must fall in a way, you know, has died down because also uh, former President Zuma, ahead of the ANC conference in December, right, passed the new policy that allows a large number of students to receive 
uh, fee-free uh, education. I think the level is what, if your family uh, is at 450,000 or so uh, rand, uh, you get a free education. Now, Bernie Sanders would be in support of that in the United States. The, your perspective was different, Somadola, that you were involved in the National Education Crisis Committee and had a, had a very interesting experience that you also shared with me previously. Maybe tell the listeners what your perspective uh, was from maybe an educational administration and former activist background. It was a very interesting evolution and exposure. I had been in the forefront of student activism in the 80s, late 80s. And later on, I was in the leadership of the academic unions. And now I come later during this crisis as part of management. And uh, much of the reason was they felt I was able to negotiate, deal with the stakeholders and so forth. I made a number of observations which I think we can reflect on. The first one, let me start with the gender dimension. It was with great relief, as Nomzam was saying, that now you had women like Nomben Lomkachua and several others who were featuring quite prominently in the leadership. But most interesting, women leaders, some of them suffered as victims of let's say violence, whether it was by the police or it was by fellow students. But some of the male leaders were charged as perpetrators. One very interesting dimension, you didn't have one female leader who was charged for having attacked anything, banned anything and so forth. The second one, it's how some of these struggles had been taking place in historically black universities all along. But the attention by the media and the society when they finally caught up in the elite institutions like University of Cape Town, Wetzwaterstrand University, Stellenbosch. So there's a class dimension to say, we'll hear the pain better if our children, as the elite of the society now, are affected. Most of these, the same intensity had been taking place elsewhere but not receiving any attention, including instances of violence and rape in some of these institutions. The third element that comes out, I raised this when I was on several occasions addressing SRC or student leadership forums, which was organized in different spaces. I said, we seem as part of the fallist movement, fees must fall, roads must fall, uh, you know, gender-based violence must fall and so forth. We seem to be spending more time on what must fall but have not yet conceptualized as much on what should rise. And I went on to say, if you go back to the Steve Beagles of the Black Consciousness Movement in the late 60s, early 70s, if you go back to the ANC Youth League rise in the late 40s, they knew what they were opposed to, 
but they also had spent a great deal of time writing, conceptualizing, infusing theories and concepts of what the alternative would be. So I said my humble advice is that it might be easier for these things to fall. What will come in their place becomes very important. And then I went on to say, social media is a great mobilizing tool, but it doesn't groom leaders and provide alternatives. It is easy to bring things down, as we saw in the Arab Spring in Egypt. But when leaders had to stand up, there were no leaders because they were all meeting in the cyberspace and the military took over the power because there was that vacuum. And the third one was the culture of engagement. Very often, the dominant groups would shut down all other alternative voices, humiliate them. There was a violent rhetoric at times. There was no tolerance for any dissent. And yet, in an academic space, you do want the diversity of opinions. Whilst you might be clear about the social justice cause that you want, but you want it to be tested through the ideas and engagement. But such were simply shut down in many instances that this is the line we have chosen. Command, this is what we're going to do. Then we begin to worry that in the end, what kind of a political culture, what kind of an institutional culture would evolve within the institutions? But of course, that should not take out one commending this generation of youth for having raised issues that the elderly generation had forgotten or had abandoned or had become comfortable being assimilated to the dominant uh, you know, status quo. Tomorrow, you're going to be speaking, both of you, at the Campus Activism for Justice conference, where some of these issues are going to be uh, debated and discussed. And you've been here now on campus for a few days. For you, uh, profits a return to familiar territory. From some of your first visit to East Lansing, Michigan, and, and experiencing a big American university, what will you be uh, sharing with the audience at the conference, and what are your expectations for the dialogue coming up? Um, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I've had the privilege this week to actually engage with a couple of students. I've attended a few classes. Um, I also was able to give a talk on Tuesday um, for the Ubuntu Dialogues. So I, I definitely say I'm pretty excited about the engagement for tomorrow because I've been able through the different engagements to find similarities. You know, I said to someone, I left Stellenbosch University thinking you know, I'd come here and you know see this American dream, you know, American university and things like that. But I've actually found many similarities, weirdly enough, um, between sort of the context in South Africa with you know students and also the context here in America. I think tomorrow I'll be focusing on the gendered aspect of student movements, sort of how they've shaped and sort of brought about the need for a different reimagining of democracy in South Africa. And I'll definitely touch on the geopolitics of the student movements because like Professor Figeni said, you know, the issue of fees and so forth wasn't something that was new in 2015. It's, it was something that other institutions
century, historically black institutions have been bringing up for long. And sort of a big thing for me that I'm going to try to touch on is the institutional culture. And not just the culture of your higher education institutions, but of the viewing apartheid as a culture itself, not just a system. Whereas 1994, we just have switched it off. But it's something that actually remains within our institutions and still you know, subjects many students and marginalized bodies to violence. Well, for me, really, I'll be focusing on the social and political forces that shaped my activism. My parents were not activists at all. They were not involved in politics. In fact, in the early stages, I had to hide my activism. And they sent me to do law at the university, and when I realized that the law would be defending apartheid, I abandoned it without telling them. And uh, so my activism at the university went on undetected by my parents. And uh, they were going to have their first child to get a degree, and I had other ideas. And the last time I was put in prison in 1985 was when I was preparing to go to exile. So I never went to exile because the prison sentence went longer and also those who were arranging had signaled that it had become dangerous to cross to Botswana. And uh, throughout my involvement in Canada, my involvement going back home up to this day, I've always understood politics and political activism being engaged in real issues on the ground in the communities and helping to search for solutions wherever you are. So it becomes a definition of who you are. So when I came to MSU, Michigan State University, it was that which guided me. When I was choosing which topic to take, it was that relentless quest for solutions to human challenges. I today run an Ubuntu development organization, which I initiated many years ago. The gain is to empower communities as part of activism. Youth and women in the rural areas, I identified gardens, they formed themselves into co-ops, helped them to mobilize resources, and they are working on those several child-headed families and so forth. So to me, activism that I acquired as a youth is not a phased thing where you say mm. I was doing it because I was younger. Mm. It is infused into my sense of being and it's most likely going to have a lasting impact in my life. And also, it was not struggling to have the flag change from the apartheid to the new ones. But it was a relentless quest for social justice, which is probably not going to be realizable within one's lifetime. But it is for one to identify the cause and do the best that we can. So it is that story that I'm going to actually raise. And it links to the book that I'm finalizing on my grandfather. I realized I couldn't quite detect when I started being politically conscious. Mm. 
but I could remember the stories being told about how my family, the community, was forcefully removed in 1962. How the work that my grandfather had generated, the houses, the farming and everything came to be destroyed. And uh, all families were given 18 pounds to go and resettle somewhere. Uh, irrespective of whether you had 600 sheep, uh, nine houses, or anything. So that sense of injustice is probably the early trigger, besides other oral traditions where we were told what had been done to our communities during the colonial conquest, during the so-called Pondo uprising, which also affected our area, and uh, during the apartheid era. So all those things combined, I guess, shaped my worldview, shaped my activism, and still shape my consciousness today. Well, I think it's going to be a terrific event, and I think the American students will learn a lot from your experiences and the, the dialogue that's going to come out of this across generations, across these national and cultural boundaries, I think is uh, precisely the kind of work that should happen more often in universities, and the legacy of which I think we'll have for many years to come. So thank you, Nomzamu Tobela. Uh, thank you, Somadola Figeni, for speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thank you, Peter, for inviting us and uh, for allowing us uh, to share our experiences. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.org at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.